Good morning, Greek Connections listeners. I'm your host, Chase, and joining me today is Brandon Bartnick. He's the host of the Future Mobility Podcast and the Vice President and General Manager at Edison Manufacturing and Engineering. In our conversation, we'll explore Edison's contributions to manufacturing in the mobility space. For anyone interested in the future of manufacturing electric and autonomous vehicles, this episode is for you. We discuss all sorts of topics today, ranging from the value proposition of plug-in hybrids and other types of powertrains, the growing importance of charging infrastructure, especially for fleet and commercial applications, along with the different types of AC and DC charging solutions that Edison Manufacturing offers in conjunction with battery backup solutions. We also talk about how the latter is a key aspect in managing grid-related costs and ensuring a seamless charging experience. Brennan shares his insights on how OEMs are positioning their long-term investments for electric vehicles, plus the critical role quality and supply chain management play into all of them. So whether you're a tech enthusiast, an auto industry professional, or just curious about the future of transportation, this episode covers it all. Plus, remember to subscribe and share this episode with others you think that will enjoy the content. And with all of that, enjoy. Yeah, thanks, Chase. Appreciate you having me on. I'm looking forward to the conversation. My pleasure. For those uh, who are listening who may not be familiar with Edison, the future of mobility, can you just give a kind of quick overview, maybe first of the podcast, and then what you do and uh, more about Edison as a company? Yeah, sure. So Brandon Bartnick, yeah, future mobility podcast started in, right, when, right when the pandemic started, pretty much. So uh, like March 2020, and I've been running it for about four years now. And Chase, you've had you on to talk uh i think it was after that the texas grid failed um what a few few years ago the when big yeah the big was failure. A nice storm and i had the question right. yeah and i had the question of like hey what, what, how do these uh how do these grids actually work and and how do we try to prevent this in the future and we had a, a fun conversation there but essentially the podcast is it's built around the search for safer more sustainable more effective and more accessible transportation which i define as movement of goods and people so how how are we providing services for people to move themselves and to get to places to get things to them in a way that's safe and sustainable and that they're not putting themselves or others at undue harm or creating negative consequences for future generations and, and all that. And, um, yeah, to cover a wide range of topics. That's, uh, I originally thought that was a reasonably simple scope, but I've since learned that is a very complex equation that we're trying to solve here. And there's, I get to speak to experts throughout the industry um, on those types of topics. And along that, my day job is closely tied to that. So I, I lead, uh, Edison manufacturing and engineering as, as vice president and general manager, and we are a niche contract manufacturer. So we specialize in low to medium volume, complex assembly of, for the most part, electric and autonomous vehicle systems, components, vehicles. And so we do, uh, we build things like chargers and electric vehicle components up to where later this year launching production for a uh, full vehicle and being the full in vehicle integrator in the electric vehicle space, autonomous vehicle integration upfits charger builds and integration. And essentially we serve as a reliable capital efficient and flexible um, partner for the companies who are, are trying to make an impact in the space. That's great. And I, I think it's been really interesting to kind of follow what you're doing now with what we had, as you mentioned, that conversation just a couple of years ago, because I know what you were doing previously was a little bit more about um, looking at ma uh, manufacturing. And I, I know that Edison does some of this as well as kind of like trying to figure out how to optimize and make it easier for manufacturing. But I, I think it's really great to see where you're uh, where you've come from and what you're trying to now uh, make kind of your own splash with this role at Edison. So that that's great to see. I know you mentioned that there may be a full car coming later this year. Is it too early to share any details about that? Or will there be an update later this year? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think you can just see there's a press release in late 2023. Um, and ho hopefully there's, there's more coming. But uh, we're, we're, I have an honor to, to work with the company Zeus Electric Chassis. Um, Based, based here in the U.S., building a Class 5 electric work truck and, and chassis. And so, yeah, we, we have, we're their partner to, to bring that into production. Congrats. That's that's great to hear. And definitely a space that could, uh, I think, is going to be one of the earlier and more successful ones, at least financially, to go through electrification just with the needs of whether it's maintenance or just also that reliability. With that, can you share a little bit of um, maybe some of the things 
just to give a little more uh, detail around Edison and what makes Edison Engineering stand out and where your kind of area expertise really is in the space. Yeah, so it, I think it starts with a, a key premise. And, and so my, you mentioned my, my background. And so I studied engineering, worked at Boeing for as a manufacturing process engineer for a, a little while. And then I, I was with a engineering services company, FEV, for a little over five years. And working with companies to develop these future technologies. So it's, whether it's battery or propulsion or any, any propulsion system, component system controls, integration in the vehicle, that's, that was the sweet spot and worked with a lot of companies to develop these technologies, but then often saw this, this challenge of how do you actually put that into practice? How do you implement that technology in a way that allows your company to grow and scale and build a sustainable business, but also to make the impact that you're trying to make in, in the world? And that was, continues to be a challenge and um, something that I saw over and over. And so that's what part of what drew me to Edison is the focus on solving this problem for companies and taking things from prototype and proof of concept into production and then executing as their, their low to medium volume production partner. And that's, it's a tough, it's a tough space. And, and the question is, how do you do that well? And one of the, the core beliefs that I have in I think, I think the team here has is that there's a lot of uncertainty in the system. No one really knows if anyone gives you a projection for EV volumes and we're talking about, hey, people have undershot or they've overshot or it was expected that someone was going to deliver this many vehicles and they've delivered this. Like that, none of that's surprising because I don't think anyone actually knows how this plays out. It's, it's too complex of a system with regulations and customer and public perception, technology that's being developed across several axes, infrastructure and geopolitical stuff like it's a super complex system here so the core belief that we're, we're kind of growing off is well in a complex system with a lot of uncertainty choose the path that gives you optionality choose the path that allows you to wait to make your big bets and that's essentially what we we do coming in and working with our customers and our partners is to deliver for them in a very reliable way in a structured way we come from our sister company, PJ Wallbank Springs, has been an automotive supplier for 40 plus years. They provide to the biggest players in, in the world, the 20, 25 million components per year that they deliver at a, a very high standard. So we know what quality looks like and we incorporate that into the products we build. But we do it in a flexible way and we intentionally limit upfront capital. We try to look for what is the most effective way to build these initial units that allow you the flexibility and the freedom to miss projections and to make adjustments and to learn that, Hey, your product's not evolving the way you originally hoped or thought it would. The market's not evolving at the pace that you had thought it would and not to make a, a upfront rigid bet and then sink the company because that bet doesn't come true. Yeah. And I think you're, there's a lot of themes you're kind of talking about right now around just what we've been seeing in the past year, really the last six months around, especially electric vehicles and I think just the auto industry in general. A lot There's been a lot of headlines about electric vehicles aren't selling, and there's truth to that. But I, I think the bigger picture really is just cars in general have come to a much slower rate of growth than we had been seeing the last couple of years with interest rates and some of the other things that have really changed to make that a little bit harder for especially manufacturers. What are some of the um, maybe surprises that you've seen at Edison around how quickly maybe some of these things have changed and how you have been able to help maybe some of these clients around these unexpected changes or slowdowns? Because I, I think what we're talking about, especially when you look at the market today from even like a year ago, it was starting to slow down, but it wasn't quite like what we're seeing right now, especially like in headlines and everything else about it, just making it sound like the industry has come to pretty much a complete stop. Yeah, that's a good question. So the biggest, biggest uh, surprises or change. I mean, so we, we've ha certainly had customers ranging from, I don't know, there's a customer that we were working with who was seeking a series B funding that unfortunately didn't close and is no longer around. There was a global automotive OEM that we worked with for close to a, a year and then strategies and budgets change and suddenly the product that they thought they were going to bring into market changes. But it's not super surprising necessarily because that's just that that happens right in, in an ecosystem like we're we're living in right now. I think the 
it's been interesting to see how perception has, has changed and how the positioning has, has changed. So that was, uh, I think one of the main things that I've recognized over the past, say, 18, 24 months or so is talking with founders and um, investors and things like that, but people like that. And the tone, whether it's on a podcast platform or behind closed doors and in a uh, private setting, it has shifted a bit in that you're seeing fewer of these big bets, right? And fewer of these companies that are coming out and saying, hey, we're going to launch and it's going to be this volume and we're going to take on Tesla within the next 12 months or I don't know, but, right. but like, you know, the, the skyrocket hockey stick, uh, there's still companies that are doing that, but the, this general uh, idea seems to be growing a bit that like, no, we don't, we don't know. And we want, we want to grow. We want to be big, but at the same time, we want to be efficient with our capital and we want to buy ourselves a runway that allows us to grow at a rate that makes it worthwhile for our, our venture capital partners. If, if, if that's what you're using to, to generate capital and fund your activities, but also at a responsible rate that allows you to account for changes in the market without, uh, without being yeah, un- underwater quickly. So I think that's the biggest change I, I've seen is in the, the perception rate and the people who are coming to us now and saying it, where it used to be, Hey, we're going to produce a thousand of these three months from now. And now it's, well, I think we're going to build 25 of these and then 50 and then a hundred, then 500, then a thousand. And then that's that's what we can get behind a bit more and be like, okay, that's now now we're talking a bit more reasonably than what we were before. Yeah, and I know your team uh, is the whole company, or is it just you based in the Michigan area? Yeah, so, so the, we are in Port here on Michigan, which is about an hour north of Detroit. Okay, that's what I thought. It's kind of been interesting because we've had some people on. Um, even the last couple episodes, we had John McElroy, who's uh, from AutoLine, based in the Detroit area, mm-hmm. and he was kind of talking about what he's seen, and obviously with kind of the big three talking about pulling back, still investing in electrification for a long-term strategy, kind of like what you're talking about, but kind of doubling back down onto hybrids and maybe plug-in hybrid technology. With what you're doing at Edison Engineering, is it? I, I know kind of looking online, there's mentions of hybrids, but it, it seems to be mostly around fully electric vehicles. Are you seeing kind of a similar thing where some of your suppliers who have been all in on electric are just like, eh, maybe, maybe we should take an approach now and look at plug-in hybrids or some of these other technologies, or, or are you still seeing kind of an interest around fully electric vehicles for the long-term solution? I, I'd say, I'd say both. Yeah. And uh, we aren't necessarily we're te- technology agnostic, uh, I would say, in that uh, part of the reason why a lot of the focus has been in the electric and autonomous space thus far is ultimately the the solution that we're providing, the way that I explained it, we're filling cracks in the supply chain that are forming. So there is an existing automotive supply chain, including our sister company, that works really well, and it has worked for a very long time. There, But it's it depends on a few things, which is know, consistent, predictable volumes that are actually going to, you know, play out. And, and we're seeing several forces that have adjusted that. So the electrification is one of them, fragmentation of supply base and the OEMs and different markets and things. And so these different forces have added, have created some cracks in the supply chain. And that's Edison's filling one or a few of those cracks. And most of those tend to be in the new technology area. So that's why, um, at least outwardly facing, that's a lot of, a lot of the work we're doing. But we have similarly interesting discussions about companies getting into the hybridization space. Also, existing companies who are building internal combustion or conventional vehicle components and systems that are declining in volumes, and now suddenly the the math around their their uh, their assembly processes are changing, and we, we tend to be a good fit for that as as well. Um, but I mean, I, I'm personally, and then also the company completely technology agnostic, and I. I, I'm, I think we, when we talked about this previously, right, like I love electric vehicles. I, I, they're a lot of fun to drive. They do a lot of good things and a lot of good use cases. They certainly aren't the answer for all situations right now. They might be in the future, but there are several assumptions and things that need to be overcome to get to that point, including costs and infrastructure. And this is the stuff that everyone talks about in the space. And back to this this framework, right, about in a world of uncertainty, don't, uh, don't limit your options. Like 
that, that's generally the way that I've thought about, and this has been fueled by some past podcast guests, but the, the way that I think about this uh, decarbonization effort is, yeah, invest heavily in electrification. Let's continue to grow and improve the technology, improve the infrastructure. But let's also not unnecessarily choose that there needs to be a single winner in this decarbonization effort. And that's, I, I think, what the industry or what kind of the correcting force in the market seems to be showing right now as well. Yeah, I, I, I pretty much agree with you. Um, and I think uh, not to go down too much of a tangent, I know last time we spoke, I believe you had just either taken delivery or were about to take delivery of a, I think it was the Jeep Wrangler 4xe. And I was curious if you yep. did take a uh, delivery of that. And uh, I, I would just be kind of curious as what has been your experience with that vehicle, kind of talking about this technology and talking about uh, some of these companies that are taking uh, a different uh, kind of the full approach. And I, I'd just be curious what your experience has been as a uh, consumer. Yeah, I think there's a, a few interesting things to, to point to here. So so one overall fantastic driving experience like and compared to the conventional wrangler it's it's so much better when you have a nice charge and you have the ability yeah you have that that low end torque and the two systems working together um from a fun perspective it's it's great it's also there's challenges um the con- control assist or not that the calibration is uh, leaves a little for des- desire to be desired there's also uh, right now there's a recall waiting on a software flash it's like i can't charge the battery because Oh, it could start on fire, which that's <laughs> that's less than ideal. Right. So I have a, a worse vehicle than I would if I'd had no battery because I have additional weight that I'm lugging around. I guess I'm so. I, I get what you're right saying, now, though. It's it's I, totally valid, yeah. And I, I think that's um, that was a big th- topic we talked about in the lot uh, the last podcast, which was around just software updates and having to deal with it. Because I assume this one's you have to take into a dealer to get the update done, correct? Yeah, and I mean you you see it too, like. The, the dealer network, right? Especially the Stellantis organization, they don't have a ton of electrification experience, right. especially in the US. So it's not like you're dealing with high voltage experts for the most part when you're bringing in, like, I mean, there's a, a few of them, but not everyone at the dealership is a high voltage expert. So that, that's been an interesting learning opportunity, but I think maybe the most interesting takeaway I've had. So I have changed my job location as well as my home location since I bought, I, I guess I'm leasing the vehicle since I, since I started the lease on it and it has completely changed the value proposition for me. So really? my previous the, <laughs> location for better, or for worse, unfortunately not for oh, that. No. <laughs> so it's, it's still, it's still a really fun vehicle and I, I love driving it around. We, we try to optimize and use it for the, the local shorter cause it has oh, 27 or so miles of, of range nominally. So you can get to a, a decent amount of places, but that, that, that type of driving made up a lot of my driving at the old, in the old situation. And even my commute, it was it's like 35 miles round trip or something like that. So Majority I got most of, it, of the yeah. way there. Uh, now I, I live in an area that, you know, I've have second kid coming and I want oh, a little bit of more, more space. I'm not too far from my own things. Uh, but so I, I don't live as close to all the stuff that I, I used to do. So the daily driving's a little longer. And I also don't live in Port Huron, which is where the, yeah. <laughs> the organization is. So I, I now have a fairly long highway commute when I go into work. And uh, Wrangler is not an aerodynamically efficient vehicle by any right. means. Also, 27 miles of range doesn't do much for me when I'm driving, whatever it is, like 70 miles one way. So uh, it's not the right vehicle for me. And this it was the right vehicle in the old situation. Like now it's likely a full hybrid would be if I could optimize based on if I did the optimization problem based on the the grid I have here as well as my my driving like my commuter vehicle I believe should be a full hybrid um, or even a, a battery electric vehicle with a reasonable range would be would be better interesting gotcha um, and sorry I didn't realize I'd heard something but I, I didn't realize the severity of this uh, the recall for the the four by e and that, that is kind of one of the interesting things that um, I kind of, I, I see the value proposition of plug-in hybrids, but I, I feel like I've kind of gone back and, and I just out of curiosity, do you plug it in pretty regularly or would you just? Yeah. I mean, when it, when yeah. I can, yes. Cause I mean, in part, because I believe the sustainability impact 
Um, but then also it's just a lot more fun to drive when it has a for full, sure, for <laughs> sure, a, a full charge rate. Well, it's interesting because we we've had a couple guests on that kind of are very pro plug-in hybrid, and then there's also I think it's starting to change, but there's some pretty good statistics, and I feel like you being who you are and working in the industry, you would actually plug it in. But there there have been some pretty good uh, statistics showing like people even with plug-in hybrids don't even plug them in that much. And some of that had to do with maybe they don't have a place to plug in overnight and other reasons. But um, yeah, it's, it's funny because now I have our daily road tripper kind of vehicles, a Tesla Model Y, and then our kind of fun, because uh, uh, being, I actually, I don't know if I told you this, <laughs> uh, I live in Bend, Oregon now, which is much more kind of rural and kind of a ski town. And there's a lot of great hiking and kind of forest roads. So for mm-hmm. those adventures, I, uh, we actually have a 1987 Land Rover Defender 90. And so those things cannot be more farther apart, but also more fun in their own specific ways. And I, I kind of, uh, yeah. I am actually planning, uh, uh, we had another guest down here that specializes in electrification of old Defenders. And so I'm looking at maybe doing that with ours, but it, it to me has just become like pretty clear that one or the other, I mean, the beauty of that Land Rover is... Uh, for as much uh, crap as British automakers get for bad electrics, in this car, it pretty much just goes to the battery and then the headlights. And I will be honest right now, it is not running because the alternator just broke. But other than that, there is so little wiring in this car that it is really kind of just interesting showing the, in some ways, I think almost the peak of like the fully uh, internal combustion engine versus like the fully electric system and just having kind of a product for each use case. And uh, I, I definitely think plug-in hybrids will be a thing and definitely a kind of maybe stopgap or at least a way to get people introduced the idea of plugging in and charging. But it's it's just kind of interesting to hear your experience with it and just what we've been seeing in the space around um, whether people are going to... I, I think there's definitely a good portion, uh, as you probably know, like the middle of the country where... Uh, the charging infrastructure still isn't that great and people are kind of hesitant to go fully with it. But there's also the use case of like, Hey, it's a lot less than gas in theory, if you get the right uh, plug in hybrid and like you're talking about, it meets your needs. So I, I think there's definitely an interest there with. Yeah. I mean, it was a 110 outlet that right. I used and it charges overnight. It's a 15 kilowatt hour pack. I feel good about that from the materials and the effort that goes into building that pack. And yeah, if I lived in the current, in the old situation at, it's the perfect vehicle, I think, but uh, just, just right. not right now. Yeah, and you said it was a lease. So what are you, are, I mean, it sounds like maybe you still have a little bit of time, but you're probably leaning towards just kind of more of the traditional hybrid if you were to do another one, or, or have you given it much thought of what you would replace it with? Yeah, so the uh, so, so we live in a suburban-like area, right? We'll have two kids here here, here soon, and uh, actually both both vehicles are up for consideration of what we want to do so the and i i I did the one vehicle thing for some time back in which worked well during the covid time but not not currently given our our boundary condition so we need we need two two vehicles and if you think about the primary drivers right of like how what goes into the decision it's i make a long highway commute two to three times a week Um, we need some way to get our family into the vehicle and move in a safe manner around, um, we'll take a handful of quote unquote road trips, which is probably a couple hour drive in one direction with the full family per, per year. And so, and there, there's a whole conversation to be had about what's a rational approach and how, how do you rationally, um, optimize those different things. What's a fun car, but too. ultimately where we, yeah, where, where we seem to be settling is like, uh, reasonably cheap, affordable, um, highway vehicle that I, you know, drive ideally a full hybrid. Like I said, I think that's, I think that's an efficient application for, for that. Um, and then the, a larger SUV of some sort, um, I mean, I guess electric could be nice, but at the same time, yeah, the cost is a factor. So some, some type of an electrified SUV and a highway vehicle is, is likely what what we'll go with. Um, But I mean, there's there's so many different factors that go into that, right? Of like, I mean, if if it is my work vehicle, it needs to be professional enough, right? right? Like it has to be. (laughs) So uh, yeah, and also like if 
if I get a high, highway optimized vehicle for that work scenario, it's likely going to be a small vehicle, which then likely does not make it the thing that we take on road trips. So then the other vehicle has to have some way to be able to go on road trips. Right. Just kind of the right balance of the purpose and the need for each vehicle. Um, yeah, so kind of rambling, but that's how we've thought about it so far. <laughs> no, 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 I get that. That's always kind of a tough decision. And uh, I mean, for us, I I had looked originally at getting something a little sportier than the Y, but we have uh, now three <laughs> at the time, two dogs and one's a very large dog. So we kind of needed something with a hatchback. And um, I mean, I've only had my car now for pretty much maybe 18 months, maybe a little under. And we've already put over 40,000 miles on it. Um, and then the defender, we, we've put a bit of miles, but that's actually just been around town and up into the mountains. So it's, it's definitely a lot less, but, um, that also is just, I mean, that's a whole different experience. It takes five minutes to get it started. It's like, it's a great weekend vehicle where it's, you want to enjoy like a classic, uh, off-roading truck, but it's not practical when you're in a rush or you have to drive a few hours, uh, but it, it is so much fun, just the character and the uh, history behind those vehicles. With yeah, I mean, if I can, just yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I jump. Go for I, it. I mean, so you're making me think of something, and this is one of the things that sits with me pretty deep in my stomach that time of like, right? You're, you're talking, you're, you're if you're listening to this, right? You hear two people who are obviously in the sustainable transportation space. You can hear several things here that are not optimized for sustainability, right? For like sure. The fact that I live far from work and I have a highway commute. Not great. The fact that I live in a suburban area, you have a lot of people who say, well, everyone should be thrown into city centers and there's, there's some, some validity there, but this is, a uh, and something I'm still struggling with and ex- exploring. I think I've gotten the closest, uh, guy, guy, Larry Burns has been a good coach <laughs> of sorts and has been a, a podcast guest a few times. He, he led R and D for GM and oh. was right at the heart of the, when, when they developed the skateboard platform back in 2000, he, he was leading the, the team and started kind of the electric vehicle revolution, but talking with him about it, he's like, well, somehow in this whole conversation, we're missing, we're missing the suburban and or rural use case, which isn't somehow there isn't percent. Like I don't live here because I hate the environment, right? right? Like right. I, I do care and I want to do the right things. I'm like, I'm, I'm making these, trying to make these conscious decisions with the way I trans transport myself and my family, as well as, the way I live my life. But at the same time, somehow in my life, I've, con- I've come to the conclusion that having some land for my kids to run around, having a quiet area, having a safer place for less fewer vehicles running around, like that matters to me. And that conclusion and my perspective has somehow been missed, like for the most part in the sustainability transportation landscape. I, I don't know exactly what to do with it because I know this is super complex but it is, that's an issue that i've been struggling with you're like right for driving forty thousand miles and 18 like it's a lot of miles but on any vehicle, <laughs> right <whether> right it's, <laughs> however it's, no but you still have made yeah and point. i i completely agree i mean that was um yeah and i know and this is before that i mean uh like i said i live in a ski town now i've always been to skiing a lot of just kind of outdoor sports and so um before that i had a super outback about the least sexy but one of the most utilitarian cars just for like throw the skis in the back, go, it's got all wheel drive, got good enough ground clearance done. And, uh, even then when I was living in Portland, I was surprised how many miles I was putting on that thing on a regular basis. And I figured, you know what, if I go electric, I'll bet you do, I'll do similar. Maybe since I won't have to worry about oil changes and all that stuff, it'll go up and it did. And then some, um, I've actually been driving way more now. And it, it's not just because I went to electric. It's a couple of friends moved to the Midwest and all these things. So I've done road trips in it that uh, I hadn't done previously. But I mean, that that was a big thing. Reason I pretty much had to choose. There were, there were other EVs out there that I thought were cool and stuff. But um, the charging infrastructure, the uh, I, I mean, where we are, I mean, you can't see it now. But a day or two ago, those trees were covered in snow. And... So yeah, I need something that I can go through mound passes pretty easily or easily enough and not, uh, with snow tires, I'm not be too worried about it. And that really just left kind of the model Y at the end of it. It's like the only option. There were others that were, I mean, obviously the Rivian was kind of cool, but charging infrastructure really wasn't still there for that thing. And yeah, it, it totally came to, um, 
even though you go around here and a lot of people have diesel pickups and all these things, although now Rivian's are a dime dozen, but at the time it just wasn't that easy and that feasible to find. That was about the only thing that could meet those uh, needs where it's like, yeah, I'm going to have to go a couple hundred miles at least. I mean, it's about 150, 180 to get to Portland from here. And that is not always in great conditions. That'll be with snow. That'll be with ice. And I mean, these are exactly what you're talking about. I, and I, I get why some people don't want to get Tesla, yada, yada, yada. But um, it, it is funny when you start talking about the rural side of stuff and that kind of infrastructure and like making it easier. Um, Bend is a little bit of a weird city in that the fact that it does have really good biking infrastructure and stuff like that. But um, once you get out of the city and like I said, you, there's about one small town between here and Boise, Idaho. The rest is just open Eastern Oregon. And there's been times I've driven South of here where I don't even see a car for hours. Uh, when I was coming up from Nevada, just a few, a uh, couple months ago. And so it's, it's one of those things mm-hmm. that like, there really are a few choices that if you want to go on and uh, go somewhere remote or kind of at just kind of uh, with no pre-planning that really still, in my opinion is the only option you could maybe get away with a Rivian, but uh, I mean, my record for doing a road trip and an EV in a days from here to Phoenix, which was about uh, just under twelve hundred miles, and that's a lot of driving. I don't care what car you're in, and that that pretty much. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I even I remember I pulled up. I was in God, where was I? I was uh, north of Vegas still. I want to say it was BD Nevada or something. I mean, there's so much Nevada that's, especially when you're driving down there, that's just nothing. And then you come like, like these small little gas station oases and there's now chargers at some of them. And I've been hitting all the Tesla ones, no real issue. Some of them were the older ones. So they charge a little bit slower, but it was always enough that like I was there for maybe 10, 15 minutes and I'd be able to drive for another hour and a half, two hours. So it's kind of the perfect amount of time to break up, run, get something. Wasn't too big of an issue. But I pulled into BD and there was a Rivian and not only was it a Rivian, I think it was the R1S, which maybe at the time was, had just come out. It was a Rivian R1S and it was towing a little camper behind it. And it had pulled up to these chargers next to the Tesla ones. And unfortunately the one DC fast charger was only 60 kilowatts, which I mean, you have to know what even that means for a fast charger, but that one was broken. And so there was this Rivian towing a little camper on a AC charger. And I just could not like, I had no idea how long that guy must've been there to get to the next thing. And I mean, I felt, I mean, it was a beautiful car and I felt bad for the guy. Um, and maybe that's purposely why he was t- towing a camper just to hang out at these things. But it, it, it was just like, yeah, I, I don't, uh, I like the car a lot. I don't know if it's my favorite car ever by any means for the model Y. But it was like, yeah, for my needs, that was about the only thing that I could do these road trips or do um, high speed uh, or not high speed, but uh, going out to really rural parts of uh, actually all over the country, but especially Eastern and uh, Southern Oregon and not have to worry about it. And I think uh, yeah. that's and I totally get if people are doing that, like that's where a plug in hybrid um, totally makes sense. And. Uh, I, it's kind of interesting. My mother-in-law just got the Volvo. God, I can't remember what it is. XC90, the plug-in hybrid one and really beautiful car on the inside. But of course the one thing it has issues with is the actual battery. She had to take it in and all this stuff. The actual uh, internal combustion engine car, part of it worked great. And it was funny because, uh, she had replaced it with a Mercedes and, uh, about six months ago, her husband, uh, my father-in-law, had just replaced their other Mercedes with a Model Y. And what was really, which is obviously not a common uh, use case for a lot of people replacing or going electric. But what was so fascinating to me was she was so disappointed in the charging of her car because the AC charging was so much slower than the Tesla and all these other things. And they go on a lot of road trips too. We met them out in Steamboat Springs recently in Colorado. And so I think for them having the combustion engine side of it for sure made sense, but it, it is just kind of interesting where uh, you, you talk about these experiences that either defy what people need a car for, or you have these companies and then you have these companies who are building these plug-in hybrids that um, I, I think it makes so much sense on paper, but then the execution of it or some other issue kind of comes up that makes it 
just like, well, maybe they should have just bought a combustion engine car from a consumer side for that experience or an EV. But I think for a lot of people, it just is, it needs to be an easier experience where you don't have to pull a Rivian up a pretty much a hundred thousand dollar car and then wait five hours for it to charge on an AC thing just is, I know. And I realize that's not the majority of people's experiences, but you see something like that and you're like, I don't care where you live. That's not going to catch on if that's what you have to do uh, to do these things. Yeah, for sure. And it's, I think it's still early, but I had some friends, I think out your way who working on a, uh, a hydrogen fuel cell truck that I think will certain there's, a lot that goes into this because yeah. I think the initial reactions should be skepticism when you hear what I just right, said right. of a hydrogen fuel side truck. But uh, I think they have the technology to actually make this happen in communities like where you're living, which I'm definitely keeping uh, keeping eyes on. And then, uh, yeah, another one of the key trends that we've, we've seen a lot is a ton of different types of trailers are getting electrified right now for right. some of the reason that you mentioned, right, of whether it's a camper trailer or if it's You've seen some of that work even in the, the long haul trucking space um, or a few different applications, but throwing some some battery e-axles, having some way to get regen and, and provide, hopefully at least offset the weight of your trailer. Yeah. Because yeah, right now the uh, the tech is just isn't there for any vehicle really to be able to tow and also get reasonable range. Yeah, I think, I mean, um, talking about that, obviously the big one was the Cybertruck and that's what everyone was kind of so hoping for was to have that range. And I guess maybe it has this battery extender. We'll see what happens there. But yeah, I mean, that I think is really the one area that uh, for electrification and I get it, that's a lot of batteries and a lot of weight to be hauling around if you only tow a few times a year, which is the case for most people. Um, And I mean, I've even towed stuff with our Model Y. Uh, Obviously it's only a couple thousand pounds but honestly as long as you don't care if, if it's just around town or you're only going like an hour driving with a uh, towing with an electric vehicle is so easy you don't even feel the difference for the most part you like if anything you might notice you accelerate slightly slower but it's still so much faster and so mm-hmm. i think from i think what most when most people talk about towing an ev i think they i think it's just one more reason like the naysayers say oh this is why they'll never catch on and in practice, it's a pretty rare yeah. need. But when you look at the commercial side of it, obviously, I mean, a buddy of mine, he's uh, he works in Volvo trucks and he lives in the Midwest now. And so it is always kind of here interesting hearing what they have to deal with and some of this talk about electrification. And then the level of skepticism is just off the roof, especially with the truck buyers. But then you there is a reality where it's like, well, I don't know. If, and it, and I've seen some of these things now where you put a battery. So it's kind of like you almost have a plug-in hybrid for a traditional truck in the trailer, which could be kind of that stepping stone and possibly work. But I, I think inherently, uh, I think once again on paper and in a science experiment and in limited use, like hydrogen makes so much sense. But it's just been the actual harvesting of the hydrogen and the storage of the hydrogen and all these other things that just make the infrastructure really difficult. And even then so many people have been talking about yeah, that, that's the innovation. Oh, that okay. Well then maybe that's so it that, because yeah. the, th- uh, the thing I've at least seen on my side um, through quite a few coworkers and others is, uh, and some of them are in kind of the natural gas space is they're talking about converting natural gas, um, a lot of it, natural gas pipelines and some of these other things to hydrogen and just inherently that's a much harder task than people realize when you're dealing with the smallest element yeah. and it just doesn't have that same thing. But I, yeah, I would love, I mean, if there's anything you can share about what your friends are working on, that'd be great. But I'd love to hear more about that soon just because, yeah, I think in trucking that to me for sure makes the most sense. It doesn't seem very practical for, uh, cars right now, but I'd be curious if you've been yeah, working I'll, on I'll keep you posted. I, I think they, they should be coming out of, uh, the stealth mode to here in the next month or two. So I'll, I'll shoot you a note one and maybe you can chat for with sure. I mean, is, have you been getting, I know you guys work a lot with, uh, to some extent chargers as charging technology too. Have you been getting, uh, a lot of interest or questions around that for like the fleet scale or like the large commercial side of stuff? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I know charger stuff that we've been in conversation and or worked on it, it's, ranging from, you know, the simple level two charger to faster chargers to some of these battery buffered solutions, right? Where you have, um, is a couple of different technologies approaching this in different ways, right? Of having some type of, a 
bank of energy. So then you can flush it into the vehicle and then trickle charge it over time uh, and minimize the fast transient draw on, on the grid rate. Um, also mobile charging stations. There's a few different flavors of these of uh, something. And some of these are longer term applications. Uh, some of them are stop gaps for right, upgrading infrastructure to be able to uh, handle additional load yeah. for charging multiple heavy duty trucks. Like it's, it's significant, right? So you have trailerized products or like microgrid type products that, um, yeah, there's a lot of these things in, in work and being rolled out. And I guess, I don't know what the sales numbers look like. They seem to make sense. Cause it's, it seems like the, uh, the grid upgrades are taking a long time in, in some places and you need some way to charge your vehicles. If you're going to introduce electric vehicles into a fleet, um, but yeah, we've, we've certainly seen interest on the assembly side because these are these fall perfectly into the category of like reasonably small vol- volume. No one's really built this type of product before, and you need a capital efficient, flexible approach to do it well. Yeah, I, I think there's been a lot of interesting conversations that we've even had on uh, this podcast around the battery backup side of stuff. Obviously, it adds a huge cost. But when you're dealing with these commercial ap- uh, applications, I think what most people just don't realize is how many... Uh, like you were talking about supply chain issues for sure that utility grade products are still dealing with. But the bigger thing too, is just like demand charges and all these other kind of uh, grid related costs when you're delivering power, especially at different times of the day that most people don't even realize that all of a sudden make these million dollar, very expensive battery, large battery installations actually cost effective much quicker than most people would realize just because it's so much easier just to drop a battery, plug in the right infrastructure, let software do some of the gaps that need to be filled. And all of a sudden these large uh, charging sites can be pretty financially uh, worth the time and the investment to make it happen. Have you been dealing with kind of any of the interests on the utility side around some of these charges or trying to find ways to make the battery kind of fill that gap for your customers? Yeah, we, we haven't so far been tied too closely directly to, to the utilities. It's prim- primarily been the providers who are looking for a solution or, or some way to, to manufacture their product. And then they're main, main managing the relationship with uh, the utility or whomever is doing the application work. Gotcha. And then with, um, I guess we do talk a lot about the level two, uh, the AC versus the DC charging. What, uh, is there anything that you're kind of seeing from your clients around a technology that they're most interested in? Is it more on the commercial kind of DC fast charge side, or is it a pretty healthy mix of both? I think it's a, it's a mix. I mean, do you, you know, this probably better, better than I do rates, but like, uh, like, like anything, the charging solution needs to be optimized for the use case. For sure. Right. And you need. You need to understand at what cadence will vehicles be coming through a given area, what type of and number of vehicles, how long can they stay there, and have a mix of solutions often at these sites that allow you to put together a total charging package that actually meets. And it's, it's not actually even as simple as I just explained, right? Because you also need to have the math of when and how much is going to cost you to pull energy from from the grid and how much right. uh, can you reliably get at a certain time, right? So like there's there, I think there has to be a mix of solutions and yeah, you sure you have your level two overnight stuff when, when it makes sense, but also uh, you often need to inject some type of faster, faster speed, DC fast charge type stuff. If you're going to have a solution that actually meets the needs of a given fleet. For sure. Um, and kind of one of those things, I mean, what we've all been talking about around, whether it's the charging technology or the actual manufacturing of the cars, I'm kind of curious as someone who's so close to the manufacturing side, like what, with what you're seeing right now, I, I, I think it still seems to be you're talking with a lot of these clients about the longer term focus versus some of the kind of the short term market instability. Where are you seeing, or what do you see as like in five years where the EV space might be, or what some of the questions that your clients are kind of coming up to you about how to kind of get to that longer term vision and that stability versus getting distracted by some of these kind of short term things happening in the space? Yeah, I don't know, but the, the overall industry, it's, it's hard, hard to say if you, it, feels like and i don't know exactly what data is coming together to make to give me this this feeling but it 
feels like some of these tangential industries and that, that's where given the volumes that I focus on, um, this is where I spend more of my time thinking and researching like the, the mass market automotive. Yeah. It's what our sister company supports a lot, but that's, if someone's producing millions of vehicles per, per year, that's probably not a right fit for our, our philosophy, mm-hmm. but I tend to spend more time thinking about, you know, medium duty electrification. I mentioned work trucks, um, think about things like ag and construction and mining or aviation, marine applications, um, these types of things. And it, it varies even in those industries, it varies widely, right? Where we get a lot of interest in like you know, forklifts or port equipment of some sort or ground, um, ground vehicles for airport applications where it's like, Oh yeah, it seems like we're making a push towards electrifying these, which makes sense. And those types of vehicles actually often are different in that they stay in the field for so long that you're probably retrofitting those vehicles, right. not producing a bunch of new electric vehicles. And, uh, feels like there's a use case and a business case that makes a lot of sense, but they've still been moving slower than I would have, I would have expected. I don't know exactly what's driving that, whether it's a, an infrastructure piece or it's a skepticism piece on the side of the, the customer who's trying to understand how they're going to integrate these vehicles or this new, this new approach into their, their business, right? Cause it's not as simple as go buy a bunch of electric vehicles and then replace one for one, what you're doing with an internal combustion in your vehicle. It's not that there's more that needs to change when you introduce electric vehicles into a right. fleet than simply the vehicle. You need to, your optimization scheme for your fleet, the uh, training for your team, the way in which you're having vehicles come in and out and pa- planning paths, routes, and all that type of stuff has to change. And so maybe that's a piece of it where people are still trying to figure out that optimization piece and they're scared off. Um, but within five years, I, I'm optimistic that these, what I like to call kind of like the obvious electrification markets, the places where you have captive fleets that are going out and back, coming to a central location. I mean, if wireless charging takes off, then it's a slam dunk. Just park where you need to, even if it, you need to plug it in. It's not not an issue. I'd, I'd like to think, and my guess would be within the next five years, that these types of markets would have very high penetration rates. Interesting. And it, it's well, the of the variety of industries you mentioned from ag to auto, uh, aero, aerospace, what uh, kind of with what, uh, the, with what you see and where you're working, what has been kind of maybe the most surprising industry that has shown uh, a strong interest for electrification? Yeah. So, so maybe the question of surprising to, to whom? So, so the, uh, I mean, I, I, before, before my previous, I, I think I mentioned I was at, at Boeing. So I came from the aviation space and I, I, I had heard about EV tolls and stuff. And when I started focusing more on decarbonization of aviation, and I still think there's room for electrifying, maybe even the vertical takeoff landing, I think the regional space, mm-hmm. but one of my key takeaways is like, that's a super tough industry to decarbonize. And I don't know if, there's, there's a lot that needs to get figured out for that to roll out at, at scale. So maybe that was one of the learnings. Um, the other was, and this is more of, I think this learning is more about me being ignorant than the technology and, and the market, but how specialized equipment mm-hmm. is, right? So like it's any of these industries you get, in, like if you go to a, we do automation, like we do a lot of autonomous vehicle stuff as, as well. So it's a similar use case, but, um, like go and learn about a port, for example, like right, a shipping port. And it's it's not like they have like standard vehicles. They have right. specialized vehicles that all do specific things. And there's a desire to decarbonize these, right? Because they're right. They're often near cities. They're, um, they, they are these captive fleets that, um, that can stay in one spot. But also, it's not as simple as go buy a bunch of off-the-shelf components and throw it together. Like there's these customized solutions that need to go into this. And th- there's other industries. Like next time you're at the airport, look around at how many different types of vehicles there are that are moving your your stuff around. And uh, yeah, I'd say that's been the biggest learning was just how much specialization each of these individual industries have and how much you need to understand the unique needs and use cases for each of these vehicles, if you're ever going to actually make a, a meaningful impact. For sure. And with, with the industries you just mentioned, since they are, uh, they're in a commercial, they're very specialized, they're commercial, but they're usually doing a similar thing over and over and over. 
Has autonomy been something that these clients have also kind of brought up to you when they come to these conversations around electrification? And what does that usually look like? Is it still maybe too early or are they just trying to figure out how to put these pieces together and maybe do it in like a step function way? Yeah, I think the, so maybe I'll, I'll start macro and someone I was talking with recently summarized it well of CES 2024 was a couple weeks ago and uh, had a lot of discussions around electrification, but also autonomy. And what they heard and what I also heard is that there's been a shift in that conversation sure. and it's it's less around when will autonomous vehicle tech tech be ready? And it's more about where are the applications that we can go automate right now? Because I mean, like, like the electric vehicle space, quote unquote, ready, ready, ready for what? Ready. The electric vehicles are, I like to use the phrase that, uh, when one of my recent podcast guests, um, to use like the, the grass is green enough, right? Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of applications that should be electrified today. It's a lot of applications that can and should be automated right now. Like the tech is very good in certain situations, not for on-road stuff. Like, yeah, robo taxis are getting there, but your your, your personal use vehicle long way. It's from about being the least automated. controlled environment, um, and what you're talking about are these very yeah. specific controlled commercial environments that you can bring down the delta of one something going wrong so much greater but two it's inherently in an environment where people can at least expect how to how to interact with these autonomous machines and the speeds yeah. usually are probably and so smart. this is happening now yeah. yeah and also there's a safe state like a safety case is huge in the autonomy space and there's a safe state of just stop right, right? like if you're in a if you're moving things around at a at a trucking um depot and your autonomous yard truck of some way like something doesn't go right just stop stay there no you're fine you're not blocking a <laughs> right away right. like there's a, a safe state that is just put the brakes on and so uh yeah your question of yeah yes automation is a huge focus in these controlled environments um to try to figure out like how, how can you realize and that has its own its own challenge of like it's it's not as simple as just buy an autonomous vehicle and say hey go do your thing but the application work has to be very intentional and strategic to actually figure out how to incorporate it into your business to solve a real need and not just be able to say, look, I have the shiny new autonomous vehicle sitting in the corner that I spent a million dollars on or whatever. Totally. And with that, I mean, um, you mentioned ag earlier, and that's an industry that's going through a lot of autonomy uh, and actually has been for quite a while. Uh, what are you seeing talking about the million dollar new fully autonomous robot thing? Um, are you seeing the interest kind of with electrification for these opportunities? Like, well, how do I just take my existing fleet and instead of having to buy a whole new one, maybe I buy 10 new ones to tread out, but I've got these other 50 ones. What can I do to either make them autonomous, make them electric? Is that more of the conversation you're seeing? Or is that more like, mm, that's what they wish for. But once you start looking at the practicality of it, it just really isn't an option. Yeah, and I'd say ag is maybe... Of, of the industries I mentioned, one of the ones I'm, I'm least familiar gotcha. with and in, in the weeds, but no pun um, intended. I, I think, I mean, the, yeah, both sides are going after I mean, if mining, for example, though, if you ask that question, like that's certainly the equation oh, and there's really a few cool companies that are doing retrofit work for big haul trucks and things like that. I think certainly for autonomy, but I think decarbonization efforts as well, because that, that's the same category those, those vehicles are built for decades, right. not years, right? Is that, um, I'm, I'm kind of curious when you talk about decarbonization, because I think a lot of that, uh, depending on who you talk to, for sure, some of that's obviously politically driven in their opinions, but so many large companies just have decarbonization mandates. Is Are you seeing that it's driven by, obviously maybe in Europe and some of these other countries, there are actual governmental um, numbers they need to hit that are driving this. Are you seeing it from your customers be more around numbers they need to hit? Or is it sometimes around their own goals that they've set as a company? Like, yeah, we want to be carbon neutral or carbon free by 2050, 2035. And so we've looked at these um, things going on in our space that we have to hit this, this, and this. Or it's like, well, with this new law passed. Or is it kind of a mix of both for what these companies are trying to accomplish? Yeah. It's 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 a mix i mean it's also it's it's hard to get to true motivations um yeah. and, and and really get to the, the to the heart of that but i mean I don't know, the, 
there's ultimately there's, there's typically some type of self-interest. Maybe for some people, they're just so committed that future generations need decarbonization to, and like that, that drives their whole business strategy. I think there are people like that. I think that's the exception yeah. though. I think more of it is like the market's going this way or we're going to be forced this way because of regulations and some external force seems to be the, the primary driver um, in most situations. No, that uh, that's kind of what I figured <laughs> would be the experience with that because it, it's also, like I was saying, even obviously very regional. What is being driven by like Europe or even some of the Asian countries by legislation versus here is like, yeah, it's probably going to go that way, but we're also getting shareholder interest and in pushing for it. With, um, I guess, a little bit of a segue with what your company does around electrification and manufacturing. What What is, um, we've talked about autonomy, we've talked about electrification. What are some of the maybe things or technologies that people that just don't have much exposure to what Edison does and your level of manufacturing, what are some of the disruptors or maybe even um, approaches to electric manufacturing especially but just manufacturing you're seeing i think probably maybe the more common ones people are familiar with are like agile uh style of mm-hmm. um built uh building especially like in software but i i just be curious if there's any other kind of things that you're seeing whether it's from an internal or just an external technology that's kind of having a large influence on this manufacturing that you and your company do yeah so i'd highlight two things and that's uh quality and supply chain so your, your approach to quality needs to be robust and specific to the needs of the product, right? And so there's within the automotive world, if, you, if anyone's familiar with that, there's something called APQP or Advanced Product Quality Planning. And that's if you have, if, if any component in your car has gone through some type of APQP process that is qualified, that then you have a PPAP process that at the end it says, if we followed all these rules and instructions, then this comes out and it's a good quality part. In the lower volume electrification space, you need to pick and choose from that process, but also honor the spirit of that process. So maybe adding a little bit more to this. So like there's an idea called failure modes and effects analysis, both at a design and a process level. So when we get a new product, we'll look at it and we'll say, what are all the ways in which this thing can break? What are all the ways that we can what are all the ways that this design is, could be faulty? What are all the ways that during the assembly process, something could go wrong that would lead to a faulty end product? And then you think about, okay, what is what is the risk level? How likely is this to happen? How big of an issue is it, is it if it happens? And how do we mitigate this? So you then put together a control plan to figure out, we follow these steps, and if we do this correctly, then we can mitigate X and Y risk, right? And, and then you, the way you bake in your manufacturing system, the way you're informing your operators and applying different fixtures and things are all built with that in, in mind. And so anyone who's not from the manufacturing world, I mean, logically, it makes sense. I mean, there's, there's parallels to, to other areas, but like that process and approach, I think, is, is critical if you're going to build anything. Figure out all the ways it can go wrong, rank them, and figure out how you can mitigate the, the biggest risks, essentially. On a supply chain perspective, similarly, and we work with both in the electric and the autonomous vehicle space, software type companies is pretty common that we work with founders who are software people, who are not necessarily hardware people. And one of the key realizations needs to be like supply chain can kill you. Missing a single component that's critical at the time when you need it to assemble your product, there's nothing you can do. You can't. You can't work at weekends. You can't work overtime. You can't put more people at it. You're stuck waiting on this one component until it comes. And so you need to build out a robust supply chain and with suppliers that you trust and that can deliver. And then also a tracking method. So likely using some type of an ERP system and doing very careful material planning and ordering and logistics and inventory management because it's so important that before a build, you have a list of what are all of the things I need and how long is it going to take me to build to get them. You order everything. When they get in your building, you know exactly where they are, both in the digital and the physical world. So you can point to something and be like, hey, that you know, that bus bar that I need, where is it? It can't just be somewhere in the shop. No, it needs to be it's on rack X on shelf 
two and location Y, right? And I don't know if that stuff sounds obvious or if it sounds like overkill, but like that is the way to do this well and to not run into unintended supply chain issues that are going to cost you a ton. Yeah. And that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think that is something that just people don't fully appreciate enough is uh, that example is spot on of if you don't have the part, there is nothing you can't do. You can't, I mean, you could potentially spend more money to maybe try and buy from a backup supplier, but either way you've lost time and more likely you've also now lost money that just can't be made up. I'm kind of curious because this is, I think, exposed, most people are exposed to this in this space, at least, or talked about around electric or just vehicles and manufacturing in general. Is there anything that while you're doing this work, since you spoke about chargers that have kind of stood out or that's been a recurrent issue for charging companies around those sorts of challenges? Issue for charging companies. I don't know if there's anything. I mean, of course, there's been supply yeah. chain uncertainty, right? And I mean, it's it's uh, it's leveled up. But maybe that's the thing I would, I guess, highlight is like not understanding lead times and the fact that you you have to like if you have a part, if you want to do a manufacturing run, you need to backtrack, assume materials all all on hand, one two weeks beforehand, backtrack from that and figure out what is your longest lead time item, what uncertainty is there in that lead time, and give yourself a safety factor. So. It can be right that you need to design freeze several months before your build starts, <laughs> which again, from manufacturing world, someone's probably laughing be like, yeah, of course, but if you're not from that world, then you might think that, Hey, we're going to design something. It's going to be designed January 31st. We'll build our first units February 15th and we'll move forward. That's uh, not, right. not going to happen. Well, and coming from, uh, having done a lot of work in the software space, exactly. It's like, Oh, we can't just change this. Uh, Oh, there'll just be a, extra dev weekend and boom, we'll, we'll get this all solved out or that'll be the next version we ship. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I was curious about that. I figured that might be, um, the reality of it. I, I know one of the areas, and this really isn't so much on the charging companies is the supply chain issues around transformers and some of the stuff that the utility actually needs to get the power to where these chargers are going. And especially for DC mm -hmm. fast charging has been a big reason a lot of larger uh, DC uh, fast charging locations have either taken longer or have just been put on hold indefinitely is just because there's been a shortage in general of transformers or other just supply chain issues. But uh, I, I yeah. appreciate you sharing that with us. I think I realize we're kind of coming up on our time and we're uh, just a little over an hour now. But one, one question I guess I have for you, I ask all of our guests are just, in your experience and what your company is doing, are there any innovative ways that you think either industry or even government can maybe help accelerate the rollout of electric vehicles or even charging technology? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of things in work. Um, I'm curious to see, right, this isn't an area of expertise here, but um, how intentionally can all of the fund, federal funding that's been put inside, put aside, actually be put into practice and go and make the impact that it's been, been uh, meant to make. So like, for example, right, you might think we're doing a lot of work in the electric vehicle space. It should be easy to go find some type of federal funding to go and do work, but like it, it hasn't, but we haven't gotten a cent of whatever, um, IRA or whatever money and uh, just the the process of going and pursuing that has made it so it's, it's not even worth it. Um, so yeah, that's, that's an interesting, of course, it'd be nice if that right, was for sure. That that's an interesting thing that I kind of learned this year earlier on our podcast, we had Lauren McDonald of the consulting and kind of just charging <laughs> guru of EV adoption. And he was talking about how Nevi funds, which are specifically for getting charger infrastructure on like the state level had kind of unintentionally been slowed down because all these larger charging companies now were, instead of putting more sites in the ground, they were waiting and trying to get federal funds to then use them to do these installations. And so unintentionally, at least kind of in the short to medium term, it was actually slowing down a lot of the momentum and the traction of the projects that we were seeing, at least for the charging side. 
And I think according to just a recent podcast, when he was on our panel, he said that had changed a little bit, but that was for sure something that was surprising to me. And I, I think it's something we've also just seen in this space a lot is a lot of money put out a lot of money that either goes to studies or other things. And then by the time, which usually a lot has passed that we see the funds put into a physical execution that actual taxpayers and consumers can use. It's okay, (laughs) but there's been a lot of whatever X million dollars that was set aside. So unfortunately that's not a one-to-one direct output of what uh, we want to see for Mm -hmm. to make that impact, to improve the experience. But I really appreciate you being on and kind of sharing these thoughts with us, Brandon. And for any of those who are either interested in learning more about the uh, Edison Manufacturing Engineering or the Future Mobility Podcast, what's the best way for people to listen or uh, kind of inquire about your services? Yeah, so Future Mobility Podcast comes out weekly every Sunday. Um, find it on any podcast uh, platform. If So yeah, check check it out there. If you want to reach out, if you're building anything or if you know someone who's building something, launching dozens, hundreds, thousands of units per year, some type of complex assembly, and they need some way to build it, reach out to me. That's that's where we, we specialize. Uh, my email is first.lastname at edison-mfg.com. So brandon.spartnik at edison-mfg.com. Shoot me a note and let's, let's chat. Yeah, thank you so much, Brandon. And uh, we have to have you on again soon. It's been too long. And with that, we'll let you get going. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our conversation today and a special thank you to Brandon for sharing his insights and expertise in the challenges and opportunities in electric, autonomous, and EV charging manufacturing. Also, definitely check out Brandon's podcast, The Future of Mobility. I know it's a podcast a lot of our listeners would enjoy as well. Remember to follow or subscribe to Grid Connections on YouTube and your favorite podcast platform if you haven't already. And if you love today's episode, please share it with your friends, colleagues, and fellow enthusiasts who may also not be familiar with our work yet. Your support helps us grow and continues bringing you the content that sparks curiosity and conversation. And before we sign off, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Your feedback is crucial in helping us create content that resonates with you, our valued listeners. So until next week, remember, whether you're a seasoned EV enthusiast or new to the world of electric mobility, the Grid Connections podcast is your go-to source for all things electric. Thank you.